Um, man, we are so glad that you guys are here. We did not expect so many of you to be here. Uh, we're going to have to bring some more chairs next week, uh, but we are really glad that you're here with us. Let me just tell you just a tiny bit of our heart here at the table. Uh, our heart here is to try to, during your time at school, get as much of this book as we can into you, to, to, to give you a steady diet of God's Word, because we believe this to be uh, the most important book in the world. And so we want to try as much as we can to teach this well, to not just help you understand it, but hopefully to help you know how to read it better for yourself. And so that kind of goes into the way that we actually teach uh, each night. So i got to make sure I actually started recording, and I did. Okay, good. Uh, so when we read the Bible, we want to make sure that we do a couple things. First of all, our goal in reading this is to make sure that we understand specifically what the author was trying to say to his original audience. We call that the author's intended meaning or the aim. So we want to know in this particular context, at this day and time, what did the author mean when he wrote these words? Rather than just grabbing this book and going, ooh, I like that. I think that I'm going to use this this way and I feel like this means this. I want to ask, what did the author mean when he wrote this? And then after I do that, after I've got a good grasp on that, I then want to go, okay, now that I understand this, how do I take the truths of this book? How do I take the big picture universal ideas that were just presented in this passage and move them into the 21st century so that I know how to live it out and how to obey? And so that's how we actually walk through the Bible every week at the table. We will walk through a text verse by verse, exploring things like the historical background, sometimes the original languages, a little bit of the literary context for the first 20 minutes and, and make sure we've got a solid grasp on it. And then we're going to take a, a five-minute break every week and then we'll come back and we'll go, okay, now we know what it says. Let's talk about what it means to, to live this out. And that's kind of our goal. Most years we take a book of the Bible and we spend either an entire year or an entire semester going through that. But this year we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, this year we're going to kind of center and focus all of our stuff around this one guy. Actually, technically, we're going to be centering everything around Jesus, hopefully, because that's all of this book is actually centered around Jesus and pointing to him. But we're going to be viewing Jesus through the lens of this one man who is a very close friend of Jesus, one of his closest, and one of his closest disciples. And we're going to look at some of his experiences with Jesus, and then we're going to look of, of some of the letters that he wrote about what it means to follow Jesus. And we are really excited to jump in and get to do that with you guys uh, tonight, starting tonight, to kind of jump into his story. But first, I have a little question for you that I want you to take 60 seconds, 90 seconds to discuss with the people around you. Do you know what your name means? Okay, like your parents gave you a name. What is the meaning of your name? Is there a meaning behind your name? Do you know what it is? And if so, tell the people around you. Take 60 seconds and do that real quick. Okay, bring it in, bring it in. 
Okay. Here we go. This is a larger crowd than usual, but I still will we'll give it a try. Let me, I want to hear two or three. Did you hear any cool ones? Did anybody next to you have a cool meaning behind their name? Tell me about it. I see somebody like you got to ask this person. Okay. Okay, wait, real quick. I'm going here with Caleb. Faithful. All right, that's good. That's solid. Okay. Right back here, someone is pointing and the other person doesn't want them to know. You tell them, tell us for, tell us for them. Bird-like? That's awesome. That is completely unique. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Right, right here, Amy. Well, that is true, actually. Anastasia's name is resurrection. That is awesome. I never thought about that. But that's really cool. That is awesome. Uh, do you know, do you know what your name is? How many of you did, don't even know? Like, I, I asked that question, like, I have no idea what my name is. Okay, yes, okay, good. It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question, sometimes a fun icebreaker. And can I tell you, it is a question that would make no sense in a lot of different cultures. Maybe most cultures. That is a question that if you asked that in, in a lot of other cultures around the world, they would look at you like you're crazy. And the reason why is because in, in many cultures, particularly Eastern cultures, like the name is self-evident, the meaning of the name. Like literally the, the names that they give their children are simply words from their languages, words or phrases from their languages. And so the meaning is uh, literally what the word is. We, we, we have a few of names like this in America, like any Graces here? Anybody here named Grace? I know we have at least one or two, okay? Um, grace is one of those names that you don't have to ask, what does your name mean, right? It means grace. That's what it means, right? It means like undeserved, an undeserved gift or maybe elegance, but it's, that's an English word and so we get it. Hope is another name that like you don't have to ask what hope means. We all know what hope means. It's part of our language, but most of our names here in America don't work like that. For example, my name is Drew and if you go look up Drew on like a name meaning website, uh, what you will find, this is true, please try not to laugh, okay? The meaning of Drew is strong and manly, right? I said not to laugh. I said, uh, uh, literally, that's, if you go and, okay, for real, this is starting to sting a little bit, guys. Uh, so, literally, that's the name, strong and manly, but of course, Drew doesn't literally mean that. It's not self-evident. And I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, it's really not self-evident, Drew. It's not self-evident because Drew is a variation of the name Andrew, which is a variation of the Greek name Andreas, which comes from the Greek word aner, which means man. And so that's how Drew gets the name strong and manly. Most cultures, it doesn't work like that. I mentioned that I lived overseas for a year and most of my friends over there were Turkish. And Turkish people, like when they give names, they, they give like one, they give awesome names, but then they also, like, their names are immediately evident. I had a friend named Dahan over there. Dahan literally means in Turkish, king of the mountain, which is a pretty sweet name. And nobody, like, nobody in Turkish has to ask Dahan, what does your name mean? Because they're saying it when they talk to him. Like, if you're eating dinner with Dahan and you want him to pass the salt, you say, king of the mountain, would you please pass the salt? Okay? That's how that works. Uh, there was another guy over there whose name was Demir, which means iron. And his last name, I can't remember how to say it in Turkish, his last name was Rain. So literally his name was Iron Rain, which is like the coolest name in the world. Uh, it's like his name is a heavy metal band or something like that. 
Uh, and they would always get confused when they had asked me, so what does Drew mean? And I'm like, uh, it doesn't really, I mean, I guess li- it means the past tense of draw, literally. If you want to know like, what my name means, <laughs> that's what it means in English. But that's not what my parents were thinking when they named me that. And they always struggle. They're like, so there's no meaning? You're just, it's just sounds that you like? And I'm like, yeah, kind of. Uh, my friend F.A. actually, he had a joke that that's how Americans named all their kids. They just drop something and whatever sound it makes, Drew, that's your name now. <laughs> like that's, and so he would mock me over those things because over there, their names mean something. And it matters the name that you give to your kid. It's not just, ooh, this sounds good. There's meaning wrapped up in an Eastern culture's name. This is the kind of culture that the Bible is written in. It takes place in a place where your name means everything. Your name is not just something people call you. It is your identity is encapsulated in that name. It's, it's everything your parents hoped you would be. It's, it's the circumstances that were taking place in your family at your birth. It's kind of their wish of, for, for what they want God to do in your life. And this is a big deal. And so we'll see these few places in the scripture, there's like 15 or 20 places where someone actually has their name changed in the Bible, from like Abram to Abraham, or from Saul to Paul. And when that happens, that's not just, oh, I want to go by something else now. That's actually a really big deal. That's a sign that you are a new kind of person. Something new is happening in you. It's, it's an identity shift. And then there are these like only like three or four places in all of the Bible where someone actually has God show up and change their name for them. Say, this is what you were, this is what you are now. It's a very rare thing and a very big thing. We're going to look at one of those guys tonight who had his name changed when God shows up and spoke to him. We're in Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, no worries. You can follow along as I read. Luke chapter 5 is the story of a man who is having a very bad day. The man's name is Simon, and he's a fisherman up in the northern region of Israel called Galilee. This is what he does for a trade. And Simon is having a bad day because he just spent an entire night out on the water fishing and has come back empty-handed with nothing to show for it. And when I say fishing, don't think for a second like I'm talking about like a rod and reel and he's just sitting out in a boat waiting. No, 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 this is fishing where they take these gigantic nets that are weighted by lead on the bottom of them and they're consistently casting them out into the sea and then trying to spin their boat in a way that will grab a hold of fish and then heaving it all up over and over and over again. This is hard work. And this isn't a hobby. This is Simon's Simon's livelihood in a day where many people were kind of living day to day, just making enough each day to put bread on the table. So when Simon comes back empty-handed, that has economic consequences for him and his family. It's been a rough night, and it's about to turn into a bit of a long morning. Because as he's coming back to shore, he's hoping, I'm sure in his mind, they still got work to do. He can't go home yet. You always got to clean the nets and you always got to mend them to take care of them over time so they don't deteriorate. So he's still got like an hour spent to do that, getting back. But as he's going, I'm sure in his mind, he's going, man, all I want is just a quiet morning to finish my job and go home. But that's not what he's going to get. As he's pulling into shore, as he looks up, the shore is already lined with a crowd full of people masses of people up against there. He can hear the buzz and the noise. And they're there because this one man, this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, is there. It's a man who just started this kind of teaching ministry in the past few months. And all, already he is causing this incredible stir in Galilee because he's teaching things that people haven't heard before. 
and in ways that they haven't heard before, and it's blowing their minds. And then he's also doing these incredible things. He's healing people of diseases and of like uh, their, their handicaps and these things and making them well and blind people. See, Simon actually, his own mother-in-law, was healed by Jesus just a couple nights earlier. And so he already knows about this Jesus when he pulls up. But I don't know if he's happy that there's a gigantic crowd. The reason Jesus is there is because the Sea of Galilee, which is where they're standing, slope, like the, the, the edges of it slope down into a valley. So it creates this kind of like stadium seating, almost like an amphitheater. It's a great place if you're going to teach a crowd. But the problem is that the people are pressing in around Jesus. Here's what Luke says in verse 1. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats on the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from there. So it says the the crowds, literally in the Greek, it says that they are on top of him. Luke wrote this in Greek originally. He says they're literally like on top of Jesus. So he can't teach because there's so many people pressing in on him that it's hard to like actually speak out to the people. So he has this idea that he'll get in one of these fishing boats, which the fishing boats that they would have used back then would have been roughly the size of this stage, if you count the ramp, actually, from here to the end of the ramp, and almost uh, a little bit wider, about two feet wider than this, about eight feet wide. And you, they could hold four to eight people in them. Jesus goes and he gets in. He asks Simon and probably a couple others to man it to push out a little bit so he can talk and the people can't press up. And, they, and he begins speaking and teaching from there. Now, I'm not sure how Simon feels about this. He's got to be tired. He's got to be thinking, I just want to go home. But, but he does know that there's something special about this Jesus figure. And so he obliges. And he gets in the boat and he pushes out. And then we see in verse 4, it says, When he had finished speaking, he, that's Jesus, said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, here's where I can imagine some of the frustration starting to set in in Simon. Uh, He's essentially just pulled an all-nighter, right? Like he spent all night out on the lake trying to fish, trying to catch these things, and he's got nothing. And if you've ever pulled an all-nighter, you know that the, the moment that you go in and you turn that project in and set it on your professor's desk or you click send or submit or whatever it is, there's only one thing on your mind, and that is your bed. And all you want after a night of no sleep and hard work is to go home and lay in your bed. And Simon's got to be thinking that. And now he's had to push that back because he's been out in the boat with Jesus. And now Jesus wants him to go out and cast his nets, which is going to start this whole process of bringing it back in and docking and cleaning and mending the nets all over again. This is putting him back like hours. Not to mention the fact that it's not going to work. There's a reason that Simon is fishing at night. Because the kind of net they're using, it's called a tremel net. And it's especially long and big, and it's really visible to the fish, and so they have to fish at night when the fish can't see it. And when they're up near the surface, there's no point in even trying to do this during the day. But Jesus says, let down your nets for a catch. And you can hear a little bit of the protest in Simon's voice when he says in verse 5, Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. So he says, listen, we've been master, and that's like a word of kind of a respect and and an authority figure, a teacher. Listen, we've been at it all night. They're not biting. And if they weren't at night, they're not going to be in the morning. But, he says, and that's a big word, but if you say so, I'll do it. 
And so he goes and he lets down the nets. And then, verse 6, When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And so Simon does this. He, he throws the net over and sits for a second, and then all of a sudden the boat just lurches. And he looks over the side, and it's just teeming with fish. His net is, like, exploding. It's literally beginning to break. And so he calls his partners in another boat to come over and help. And somehow they all get over there, and they begin to pull this net up and just kind of scoop fish over to the side until it begins to fill up both of their boats so much that they start to sink. They start to capsize a little bit. And this is incredible what's happening in this moment. They can't believe what is going on in this moment. And then... Simon is sitting there, knee-deep in fish. He would have to be, up to his knees. The, the, the boats would be four feet deep. And so to be filled so much that it's about to capsize, he's up to his knees in fish surrounded by them everywhere. But, but fish is not what he's thinking about in this moment. He turns his eyes to this man standing in the boat because he cannot believe what just happened. And we see in verse 8, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partner. Now this may seem like an odd response. There's a lot of fish in my boat. Oh my gosh, I'm such a sinner. Jesus, you've got to leave me now. Right? That, That doesn't seem to compute at first. But when you realize what's happening is Simon in this moment is realizing that this Peter, or that this this Jesus here is not uh, just a normal person. This is no mere man standing in the boat. There's some kind of divine presence to this man. And in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, every time somebody encounters the divine presence, like the presence of God in all its holiness and glorious, they are, number one, immediately aware of how sinful and broken they are in the light of God and His glory. And number two, scared to death that they are standing in the presence of absolute holiness. And so they fall to their knees and their faces. And this is what Simon does here. Go away from me. Listen, you're, you're obviously something more than just a man. And, and you don't know me. I'm, I'm, I'm not the kind of person you're looking for. I'm too sinful to be here with you. You've got to depart from me. But, but what Simon doesn't know is Jesus knows him completely. Jesus knows all about him. And Jesus says to him in the last half of verse 10, Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on you will be catching people. And then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. So Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid. You actually are exactly the kind of person that I'm looking for. Someone who sees and knows their sinfulness. Someone who sees and knows their need and their brokenness. And then he gives Simon a new calling. You're no longer going to catch fish. You're coming to work for me now. I'm going to send you to go catch people, which means he's going to to go to people and bring them to Jesus. But a new calling is not all that Jesus gives him. Actually, Jesus, and we talked about this at the very beginning, Jesus will give him a new name. We're going to see it in chapter 6, verse 14. He'll list all the disciples, Luke will, and then he'll say, Simon, whom Jesus named Peter. And this becomes his name from here on out, Simon Peter. Actually, I don't know if you noticed it, but Luke actually dropped that name in there in verse 8. All the way through the story, he calls him Simon, Simon, Simon. And then in verse 8, he calls him Simon Peter before Jesus has actually given him that name. 
And then he goes back to calling him Simon, Simon, Simon again. Why? Why does Luke do that there before Jesus has even fully changed his name? And why does Jesus change his name in the first place? What's the deal with that? Why does that even take place? We're going to try to answer those two questions in just a few minutes after our break. But for right now, we're going to give you a minute to kind of stretch your legs, stand up, and actually we're going to do something which I don't know exactly how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. One of our, one of our kind of, uh, whatever you want to say, habits here at the table is whenever you're new, we, we've got these incredible chocolate chip cookies that my wife, Amy, makes. They're like semi-famous in Stillwater. People call them Amy Moss cookies. And, and like we hand those out to new people. The problem is on a night like this, everyone is sort of new. And so we've decided she actually made, my wife is incredible, uh, she made 250 cookies yesterday. And so we're going, yes, yes, incredible. Uh, and she married me after that debacle of a proposal. So you know that she's really good. So uh, what we're going to do, you can stand up. There's a restroom right inside, all this stuff. But we're going to have some people come down, and they're just going to pass. It's kind of like a communion style. We're going to pass the trays and grab a cookie out of there and eat that, and then we'll get started in like five minutes. <laughs> all right. I said, uh, I asked this question as we left, these two, these two questions. Why does Luke change, or sorry, why does Jesus, I'm going to move that closer, see if that helps a little bit. Yes, check one. Okay. Why does Jesus change Peter's name? And number two, why does Luke do this weird little thing where he drops that information into the middle of this story and then just kind of goes back to Simon again? I'll answer the first one. Uh, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. Sometimes he'll go by Peter, sometimes Simon Peter, but because the Greek word that's actually being used there is Petros. And it means rock. And he changes Peter's name to this idea of rock. And he'll tell Peter later that I'm going to use you in a significant way upon you and upon this confession that Peter will make about Jesus. I am going to build my church. And, and Peter becomes a key leader in the early church when it first began. So he's one of the kind of main people that Jesus uses to launch this thing out. And when he changes his name, he's saying, I don't care who you are or who you've been. This is who you are now. And he's giving Simon into Peter a brand new, a whole new identity, a whole new way to live his life. Now, why does Luke tell us this before Peter or before Jesus actually does it? Why does he drop that little knowledge in there? I want to try to explain that. I have a theory I don't know for sure, but I have a theory. But in order to be able to explain that to you, I need to tell you something about Peter. And that is that Peter is a mirror. This is what Peter is. And this is what, well, that's going to blind some of you guys right there, isn't it? Okay, we'll have to angle it back just a little bit. Um, this is what Peter is, but this is actually also what you are. This is what I am. Now, to, to kind of grasp where I'm going here, you need to know what does a mirror do? It reflects, that's right. What a mirror does is it reflects the things that it's pointing towards. It reflects those things out. That's what a mirror does. Here's what a mirror can't do. A mirror cannot pull an image from within itself to display. It's not like a TV. It's not like a painting. It doesn't have its own image. It displays out whatever image it's pointed towards. Another thing a mirror can't do is it cannot reflect or display anything that it's not pointed towards. So this mirror is not going to show you this fence, no matter how hard it may try. It's going to have to be angled towards that in order to be able to reflect those things out. That is what Peter is like. That is what you are like. 
Every one of us, actually. Okay, I'm going to see if I can set this up without blinding some of you guys. See if we can lean this back just a little bit. That going to work? We good there in the front row? Okay, awesome. Every one of us, actually, is exactly that. The Bible says this, that in the beginning, God created everything in the universe. Everything you see and everything you can't see, He made it all. And as kind of the culmination, the pinnacle of this creation, the very last thing He creates is human beings in His own image. Take a quick drink. Mouth is drying out. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says these words, So God created man in His own image. He created them in the image of God. Male and female, He created them. Truth is this, that you were made in the image of God, which means that you were made to reflect God in all of His beauty, in all of His glory, in all of His love, in all of His truth, all of those things. You're designed to be a picture of that to everything around you. And that means, first of all, that you're amazing. Because there is nothing else, everything in creation reflects God in His glory. Nothing else in all creation reflects God to the degree that human beings do. We are His image bearers, and that is amazing. But there is something tragic that happened. Just two chapters later, we see this, that sin enters the world. And when sin entered the world, it didn't just come into the world. It actually, one by one, entered the human heart. Every last one of us. Sin is essentially this. Sin is turning ourselves away from God. It's saying, yes, I, I know you created me. I know I was made to know you and to love you and obey you, but that's not what I want. I want to go my own way. I, I want to call the shots in my life. I want to be the boss. And so we turn away from God to go our own way. That's called sin. Anytime we reject this design or this purpose for us, and what sin does is it severs us from God. It separates us from the very one we were made for, but that's actually not all that it does. The other thing that sin actually does to us, the Bible says really clearly, is that it shatters us, is that it fractures us, and it does something inside of us that we cannot undo ourselves. Have you felt this? I know I have. This feeling inside of me that something is not quite right that I am not quite right. That, that there's this person that I'm supposed to be, this person that I'm designed to be, that God made to me to be, and yet I'm not quite that thing. See if that will hold. I think everyone who is able to sit and look at themselves long enough is able to know the truth, that this is true about them, that they're not who they were designed to be. The question is actually, can you? But now I'll say this actually, most of us, can look around at the world and see this pretty clearly. Like there, I don't think there's anybody in this backyard tonight who would say when they look around at the world, when they scroll through their news feed, go, oh, things are fine. This is how things should be, right? Like all of us had this ability to look at the world around us and see that we are living in a world filled with hate and injustice and violence and brokenness and pain and all of these things and everyone knows it whether they can admit it to themselves or not this is true of all of us and the story of humanity in many ways the story of humanity is us trying to figure out what we can do to fix that how we can fix the world around us and how we can fix what's wrong inside of me 
But there are two big lies that you are continually told over and over again throughout your life as to how you're going to fix that thing. The first big lie is this, that the answer to your problem lies somewhere in this world. That if I will just take myself, if I'll just take my mirror and I'll just turn it towards the right thing and put my attention towards this thing, this thing will fix me. This thing will make me whole. This thing can give me identity again. And so you see this over and over again where people will turn themselves towards success and they'll make it their whole life's aim to to achieve and to be at the top of their class or to be the top athlete or to get the top scholarships and make it into the top businesses and companies and do all of those things and they'll give their whole life to that or there are people who turn their mirror towards things like money and they make it everything that they are is to try to gather more stuff to themselves to get a really nice house and fill it with cool things and live the good life other people will turn their mirror towards relationships and they will try to find if they can just find someone who will love me for who I am then I will be whole again the problem is that that never works never works because none of those things can fully fulfill you. And the truth is, what you turn yourself to is what you become. That a person who turns themselves towards achievement, that soon enough that begins to define them. That begins to become their entire identity. It's everything they think about and talk about and dream about and they live their whole life towards it. The same with money, the same with relationships. What you turn yourself to because you're a mirror is what you're going to become. It's what you're going to reflect out to the world around you. And no matter how many things you chase, none of them will fix you. The second big lie that we're told, and this is the bigger one more recently, that the answer to all my problems lies within myself. That if I can just dig deep enough down inside of there, there's a real me, the true me that is trying to get out. And I just got to find who I truly am and I got to live out my, my real self, my real true me, the, the me that makes me happy. And this sounds really, really good. It really does. There's a lot of things about that that seem to kind of make sense at first. Until you begin to realize this truth, that there's actually about a thousand me's living inside of me. There's the me that my parents want me to be. There's the me that my friends want me to be. There's the me that my classmates think I am. There's the me I try to project towards professors. There's the me that Disney always told me to be and the me that TikTok tells me to be. There's a thousand different me's because I've been turning my mirror to thing after thing all my life trying to find something. And so I don't know which one to, to grab a hold of. And here's where you go, yeah, yeah, that's the point, True. You've got you've to reach past all the clutter, reach past what everyone else thinks, and you've got to find what you think, what you want to be. And that, again, sounds good. But you know, the problem with that is that that me is always changing. That the very things that I thought would make me complete and happy and whole and give me my identity, they're not the same things they were two or three years ago. And they're not going to be the same things two or three years from now. It's changing constantly. In college, it's going to change about every two or three weeks. Over and over again, you're going to find different things. And maybe I need to switch my major. And maybe I need a new boyfriend. Or maybe I need a new group of friends. Or maybe I need to aim for a different thing. Over and over again, that's constantly going to shift. So if you try to reach inside of you to find the real you, it's going to be like trying to grab a hold of shadows. None of these things will work, and none of them, whether it's reaching inside of yourself or looking to other things out in the world, none of them can fix the root problem, which is that you have severed yourself from the God that you were made for, and you are now broken. 
None of those things can put you back together. You'll just be a distorted reflection of whatever you're pointing yourself to. So, here's the question. How can this be fixed? How can I be made right again? How can I go back to what I was supposed to be and live the life I was meant to? The answer to that question is one small little statement found in 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21 says this, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is, to restore the broken image in humanity, what God did was he sent a new and perfect image bearer. Someone who was without brokenness and without flaw, someone who was finally able to walk this earth and reflect God the way you and I were designed to, who were supposed to be that, supposed to be like what we were supposed to be like. And, And one day, that man stood in a fishing boat with a man named Simon, and Simon is sitting there up to his knees in fish, and he turns himself towards that man and recognizes that there's something different about him. But here's the truth, Simon doesn't even know like the very tip of it. He doesn't know just how different this man Jesus is because what Jesus came to do was not to show Simon how to get back to God. He came to make the way to God for Simon. He came to clear a path so that he could return to him. Three years later, the man standing in the boat would be nailed up to a cross. And when that happened, there were these cosmic realities that began to unfold. Some people could experience them. Some people didn't know what was happening. But all of the sins of Simon Peter and all of the sins of all his guys sitting in the boat with him and all of your sins and my sins and every sin was put on the shoulders of Jesus and he bore the burden of those things and paid the price for those things so that we could be made whole again. He became broken so that we could be whole. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be able to reflect God rightly again. Be what we were made to be. That is what he came to do. So how do you get in on that? How do I take a hold of the one thing that will bring me back to what I'm supposed to be? How do I do all of that? It's simple. You just do what Simon Peter did in the boat. You acknowledge your sinfulness and your brokenness and you turn yourself towards Jesus. That's all you do. And if you're here tonight, and maybe this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this, and it sounds weird, and you don't know what to make of that, I just want you to know this, that this offer is for you. This offer is for you to to, to come and turn yourself and have all of the brokenness in you healed. It's not magic. It doesn't make all the pain go away, but slowly you begin to be transformed. Another verse in 2 Corinthians 5 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And the thing is, you don't have to patch your mirror up to turn yourself to Jesus. You don't have to clean your life up first to turn. He loves you and wants to restore you anyway. He is already ready to do that. He's the one who does the patching up. He's the one who does the restoring. All you need to do is turn your mirror to Him and put your faith in Him. If, if you don't know what that means or what that looks like, how do I do that? There are people all over this yard who would love to talk to you about it. Ask somebody wearing one of these shirts. Come talk to me afterwards. Ask the friend who brought you tonight. They would love to talk to you about those things. But for the rest of you, and I know that there's probably a lot of you, 
who've already turned your mirror to Jesus. You have already placed your faith in Him and asked Him to be your Savior. And and you have experienced the forgiveness of your sins as He is slowly making you new again. Here's the thing you need to know. You still have the option every day as to what you're going to turn yourself towards. And what you turn yourself towards is what you're going to reflect. And what you turn yourself towards is what you're going to become. And so I plead with you, as you begin your time here at OSU, I plead with you that you would not waste these years turning yourself towards pointless things. That you would not waste these years turning yourself towards good things that aren't ultimate things. Things like success and achievement and relationships. Those are good things and okay things, but they cannot ever fully define you. They cannot ever fix you. They can't make you what you're supposed to be. Only one person, only one thing has the ability to do that. And that's the only person who will never change. And therefore, when your identity is rooted firmly in Him, your identity isn't going to shift like shadows constantly every few weeks because He makes you who you are. Not what you do, not who likes you, not who's impressed with you. Jesus makes you who you are. And so my plea with you, we call this a gospel-centered life at the table, that you would center your life around the truths of the gospel, around who Jesus is and what He's done. My plea with you is that you would turn yourself to Him and that you would let Jesus define you and that you would let His purpose be your purpose while you are here at OSU and for the rest of your life. Uh, Justin Early is a writer that I really love and I've been quoting a lot recently. Our leaders are probably sick of hearing his name by now. I actually stole this whole mirror illustration from him, just to be honest. He says this, We will never know who we are apart from the God who made us. And we will never know who we are becoming apart from the God who is renewing us in Christ Jesus. And so my prayer and my hope for you is that you will find who you were made to be by the God who not only made you, but is ready to remake you again in Christ Jesus. And that you will spend all of your life pointed towards Him and reflecting Him out to the world around you. Let me pray for that and we'll wrap up. Oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. Uh, And I thank you for coming uh, to save a a busted up, broken person like myself who still uh, still feels uh, the flaws that I have put inside of myself. I, I am so grateful for your forgiveness and your grace. And my prayer, Lord, is that tonight the words that I've spoken that you would confirm them to the people that are listening, to my friends here in the audience, that your Holy Spirit would help them to experience those truths as real and that they would be able to find the grace and the love and the peace that they have been looking for, that you would enable them to find that in Jesus tonight. Give them the courage to ask somebody. And for those who already know him, give us the passion to turn our whole lives to Jesus and follow him. I ask you to do that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.